according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me uh, this morning in Hebrews 1.1. How about that? I decided we're going to start over. We'll do Hebrews 1.1. We are starting over in a sense. We have concluded chapter 13. A week ago, we wrapped up the last of the verses in Hebrews 13. And so essentially, our series is complete. But a series such as this that is so deep and uh, lasted three years as it did, uh, it lends itself to some forgetfulness. And so uh, in the event that perhaps you don't remember everything that we taught in the last uh, three years, we're going to take a few classes, at least five, maybe more, maybe six. Um, Anyway, uh, I kind of designed it for five, but we'll see, um, to kind of recap and review. And so uh, this is Hebrews in review. And you have notes, by the way. The outline I'm going to use this morning is in your bulletin. And so you should have an outline with a one, a two, and a three, and point two has an A and a B and a C. And so there you go. I don't even need to be here. Just read that and (laughs) have a good day. But this is uh, the review. We're going to handle verses uh, one through four this morning. The prologue gets its own review message. And then next week we'll look at uh, chapters 1 through 4. We'll look at uh, the basic outline of the book of Hebrews, uh, God's king's son, God's priest's son, our priesthood in Christ. Uh, We gave a kind of, I stole it from uh, uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary and uh, Zane Hodges in his uh, his outline for the book of Hebrews. To me it was uh, simple enough and and effective, so I made use of it. Uh, The idea of the uh, the prologue, followed by God's king's son in chapters 1 through 4, God's priest's son in chapters 5 through 10, then uh, the response of faith in Hebrews 11 and 12, and the epilogue in Hebrews 13. Those are kind of the five main sections of Hebrews that we went through uh, in the last three years, and that's kind of how I've shaped this review to be in those five parts. The uh, The second and third part, though, are, are huge. Uh, chapters 1 through 5, chapters uh, or 5 through 10, that's a huge section on our Melchizedek priesthood. So it would not shock me if uh, if our review Sunday turns into two review Sundays for that portion, the priesthood portion of the book. And uh, we'll see how that goes. All right. God of spirit, he must be worshiped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the word of God. Let's humble ourselves uh, through silent prayer, preparing our hearts for the authority of Bible doctrine. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for the blessings of your word. And Father, so thankful for the last three years that we've spent here in the book of Hebrews together. So much doctrine, so much uh, power that's available to us as we live what we've learned. Father, I thank you for the blessing of entering into rest. I thank you for the blessing of standing before you in our priesthood all day, every day, Father. And uh, what a joy that we have because our Savior is the apostle and high priest of our confession. So Father, uh, we're going to miss this book. It's almost a shame to bring it to an end, but um, we are moving on to, uh, to Genesis here next. But Father, before we do, uh, bless our studies and, and help remind us of uh, the depths of everything we've studied and learned that we might not forget them moving forward. I thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so essentially we're taking one hour to snapshot seven hours 
the uh, prologue we covered in classes 4 through 10 after we already had spent three hours just introducing the book uh, and uh, talking about who the author was. We don't know uh, where he was when he wrote it. We don't know who, uh, who the recipients were. We don't know where they were when they received it. We don't know. You know, it seems to me, you know, why does that take three lessons to teach all that? But we did. We taught the introduction to the book of uh, Hebrews. I believe Luke is the author. I used to be a Barnabas guy. Um, anyway, all of that was foundational. If you want to go back and re-listen to those, uh, they are classes one through three. What we're going to review this morning is classes uh, four through ten, which is essentially this marvelous prologue and one of the most powerful sections of any passage, Old or New Testament alike. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. The one who uh, It's all one big sentence, although in the English we stop, we, we put some other sentences in there, that's all right. The rest of verse 3 then, when he had made purification of sins, or having made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. All right, this is the prologue, and this is what introduces a tremendous theological discourse that essentially is everything from chapter 1 to chapter 12. It is a powerful discourse for how does an Old Testament believer relate now to this New Testament priesthood in Christ. The recipients are likely priests themselves, or they used to be Levitical priests, but now they are church-age believer priests, as we all are. And the glories of our current priesthood in Christ are far beyond anything that the Old Testament priesthood ever dreamed of or ever imagined. And so we have this marvelous book called Two the Hebrews. And in a lot of ways it's uh, it's a nice corollary to Acts chapter 15. You know, very early in the in the church age, the apostles all got together in Jerusalem and they had to debate uh, what to do with the Gentiles, right? And they debated what to do with the Gentiles and they decided, well, they don't have to be circumcised and well, you know, they don't have to follow the law. And so really it was a good conference. We call it the, the Acts 15 conference. And uh, Peter and, and Paul and James, they all participated and they, they developed a, a statement at the end. They wrote a letter. They sent it to all the, all the churches everywhere that were mostly Jewish believer churches and kind of gave them guidelines for how to handle it when Gentiles start coming into their church. And so in, in Acts 15, we settle that question, at least as far as it relates to the Gentiles in these early churches. But they didn't really also go so far as to say, well, now what about the legacy? What about the Jews that we still have and their hang-ups with the law and their insistence on animal sacrifices and coming to the temple and taking part in temple things? That development was deferred until the book of Hebrews was written. And until this text, now we have a very comprehensive um, book related to Jewish people and how they can function in the church age, how they can function in Christ rather than in the Levitical priesthood that they used to function in before. But really, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're neither now that you're saved. And we have the blessings now to function in this priesthood in Christ in a way that, uh, that should be pretty special for us at this, uh, at this point of time. All right. 
So the Old Testament was a multiplicity of messengers. God, God's multiplicity messages. I mean, you look at this variety in many, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways. There was a multiplicity of messages. And they came via angel of the Lord visitations. Do you remember some of those? The angel of the Lord showed up for dinner and Sarah laughed and uh, Abraham and invited him into the tent while they were on their way to uh, destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. It was an angel of the Lord visitation. Audible voices from the sky. It was another of the multiplicity of ways that God spoke. Burning bushes. Remember the burning bush? calling for Moses and Moses says, wow, that's different. Okay. The bush is on fire and it's not consumed. What's happening here? I better investigate. And um, the Lord said, this is holy ground. Take off your shoes. It's part of the many portions in many ways. And it's spectacular, the variety that was employed. Uh, The pillar of fire by night, the, the pillar of cloud by day, as he led them through the wilderness after the Exodus, he brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground and he led them in this way. Part of his messages, talking donkeys, all right, that uh, gave the Bible class to Balaam there in the book of Numbers. Dreams, visions, etc. So there was a variety and that was by design. The 39 Old Testament books were given in different times, different people, different, different eras of, of Israel's history. Prophetic teaching was given in declarative oracles as a prophet would stand up and declare, thus saith the Lord, you know, behold the oracle of of God. And and this was uh, very common, but there were also demonstrative pantomimes. Uh, Ezekiel had to lay on one side for 40 days and then roll over and lay on another side for hundred and however many days. And uh, those those, uh, demonstrative pantomimes, Isaiah had to walk around naked for three years glad I wasn't there. All right. That's, um, there's a lot of times I'm very happy to be a New Testament pastor teacher rather than an Old Testament prophet. Um, Hosea had to marry a harlot and then take her back after she resumed her harlotry occupation. And then he had to take her back and remarry her. And, and uh, these are the demonstrative pantomimes that the, uh, so many of the prophets had to do. Jonah had to be swallowed and had to spend three days in the, in the whale. Because it's a demonstrative pantomime. He's acting out. It's, it's like show and tell. God is marvelous at show and tell. And he uses his prophets as the, as the props for, uh, for what he didn't have PowerPoint back then. So they, you know, he puts Jonah in a whale for three days. And, uh, and that's the pantomime. That's the dramatic portrayal of Jesus in the grave for three days and three nights. There are also animal rituals, the scapegoat and the the burnt offering and all of the animal rituals that taught the Christological truth that they taught. Tabernacle furnishings, even the furniture taught doctrine. From the candlesticks to the table of showbread to the laver to the altars, the different furnishings. Shadows, typology. When when Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, again a dramatic pantomime and a display through shadows and typology. You have a father who loves his only begotten son but is willing to put that son to death. Abraham and Isaac are a portrayal of God the Father and Jesus Christ. And, and that's how God revealed doctrine throughout the Old Testament. Old Testament theology is very comprehensive, but it's also very um, different. It's, it's full of variety. There's, there's poetry, there's prose, there's songs, there's music, 
there's um, erotic literature in the, in the sexual uh, uh, things of, of, of marriage in uh, the book of Song of Solomon. Shadows and typology ultimately put into a Hebrew text and recorded in the Hebrew scriptures, the written Hebrew canon. That was the Bible, essentially. That was the Bible uh, for the whole Old Testament period. That was the Bible that Jesus had in his day and age. That was the Bible that the disciples had uh, during Jesus Christ's first advent. And it was all written in Hebrew and some Aramaic. All right. But when then we get to the New Testament, something different happens. God births his son into the world. And the only begotten son of God comes into the world as a keynote speaker. All right. First of all, let me just read these advantages here from uh, Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Wow, I can't read that. That's crazy. All right, well, it's Romans 3, 1 and 2, and then Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. Remember, in Romans 1, you have Gentile depravity. Romans 2, you have Jewish depravity. And we're all sinners. What, what is the advantage then? What advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, and this is kind of Pauline, he, he gets his number one item out there and then he kind of drops it for several chapters before he comes back and, and gets secondly, thirdly, fourthly, and some other advantages. But first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. If you think about it, the angels had their stewardship and then the earth was destroyed, the earth was restored for a human habitation. Adam and Eve then take the stewardship as image bearers, as they image God. And we have a human stewardship that follows from Adam to Abraham. But then God selects a family, the family of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he begins a Jewish stewardship. And he begins with the Hebrew people to put his words in writing in the Hebrew language. The, the Greeks didn't get Greek scriptures, not then. The Romans didn't get Latin scriptures. The Babylonians didn't get Babylonian scriptures. It was the Hebrews with Hebrew scriptures. And that was the totality of the Bible from Genesis to Malachi. And then 400 silent years until the birth of Jesus. Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, we talk about the advantage Paul would willingly go to hell if he could save the Jewish people. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Sometimes you see current events and you have patriotism and a love for your, your people. And your people are slated for destruction and it's heartbreaking. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That says the curse. He would, he would throw away his salvation if he could. He would accept the curse to redeem his people in much the same way that Jesus did when Jesus became a curse and dying on the tree and redeeming Israel from the curse of the law. Um, you know, in, in, in uh, Abraham's bosom, when Abraham said there's this great gulf fixed over here so that everybody on the, on the torment side can't cross over to Abraham's bosom in the place of comfort, Abraham also said nobody from our side could cross over there. Which makes me laugh when I read that. I think what kind of a moron would want to leave Abraham's bosom and cross over to the torment side? Well, Paul just said he'd do it. He would cross over if 
doing so would save the Jewish people. I find that to be a powerful statement. But he goes on to say, the kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons. No Gentile nation was adopted the way Israel was adopted. And the glory. What Gentile nation had Shekinah glory dwelling in their midst? And the covenants. What Gentile nation had the covenants that Israel has, starting with the Abrahamic covenant and the the Mosaic and the Davidic and the new covenants? Those are all with Israel. Adoption, glory, covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises. They're all Jewish promises. What promises do the Gentiles have? None. But connected with the Abrahamic promise in you, all the nations, all the Gentiles of the earth shall be blessed. So any Gentile blessings that come have to come by the agency of the seed of Abraham and uh, the, the covenant promise there. We'll deal with that. It's all coming up in Genesis. Whose are the fathers? Those are the Jewish fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they've got the fathers. You know, did the Greeks have fathers? Probably, who cares? Did the Romans have fathers? Maybe, who cares? Romulus and Remus raised by a she-wolf. These Gentile nations have mythology. Israel has the creator God of the universe recording their scriptures so that Moses can write, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from, from day one, evening and morning, one day, we have the accurate account of all human or all uh, our appropriate history. So whose are the fathers? From whom is the Christ? He wasn't a Roman, wasn't a Greek, wasn't an American or a Russian. He was a Jew of the line of David. uh, From whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. And so the Old Testament had a lot of variety through all of these different ways, many portions in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Upon the last of these days, God spoke to us through a son. This is special. This is unique. The beloved son is the ultimate messenger. There can be nobody more valuable, nobody more trustworthy, nobody more significant when the king sends his son, this is, what, what greater messenger could he send? Short of coming himself. The beloved son is the ultimate messenger. You know, if you think about it, Moses and Joshua and Samuel and all the Old Testament writers, Isaiah, Jeremiah, any Old Testament writer you want to point to, they're all human, they're all from earth. Did any of them go to heaven and check things out and come back and tell us what it was like? Okay. A few of them had heavenly visions, but none of them were from there. Jesus was from there. The creator God of the universe became flesh and dwelt among us. He descended so that he could ascend and lead many captives captive. All right. Jesus taught a parable about this. Matthew 21, 37. We've got to back up a little bit because this talks about these other messengers. This parable, next time you read, or this morning, right now, we're reading this parable. Consider this parable and its connection to Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. 
because this is the long ago in many portions in many ways, and now in the last of these days He has spoken to us in His Son. So listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. So the vine growers, they don't own all this. They're simply renting it. They're working it. They're accountable to the owner. That's what stewardship is. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. That's the many portions in many ways. The prophets who spoke of old. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. So you can think about the earlier prophets, the later prophets. Which of the prophets did your fathers not kill? <laughs> Jesus asked that rhetorical question. And, and uh, yeah, almost every prophet met a violent doom. But then afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. You see the transition? You see the, the special nature of the son bringing a message. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Now, it seems rather insane that by killing the son, that automatically, he doesn't make you an heir, but you can seize by force what you think you're entitled to as long as the one who really it it is entitled to, if he's out of the way, then do what you want. That's how satanic thinking works, right? Might makes right and do what you want as long as you can get away with it. And think about how this parallels what we just read in Hebrews. Through whom also he made the world, whom he appointed the heir of all things. The beloved son is coming to bring the father's message and he is the creator. He is the heir. All things are made through him and for him, we're told. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those vine growers? This is the parable that Jesus is teaching. They're going to crucify the Christ. And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. All right. And uh, what a prophecy. They're actually not wrong because Israel's stewardship is going to be suspended and a new stewardship is going to be revealed upon the earth, the stewardship of the church, the body of Christ, us, neither Jew nor Gentile. And so you can see a change of stewardship is required because these stewards are not faithful. Anyway, that's Matthew 21. The text in Mark is parallel. The text in Luke is parable. We don't need to, uh, to read all of them. God the Son is God the Father's uniquely begotten and beloved Son. He is the celebrity of the universe. He is the celebrity of the book of Hebrews. Very much so like he's the celebrity of the book of Colossians. I'm thrilled that we had Colossians in parallel with Hebrews all this time. Not all this time, but for the last year or so, we've doubled up. The, uh, the glories of Christ in his role as the firstborn of all creation, that came to us from the Colossians series. The glories of Christ and his role as the firstborn, it's also in Hebrews. How, what a blessing to combine these. God the Son is God the Father's uniquely begotten and beloved 
son. You know, it's curious. You can find angels that are called sons of God. In fact, the highest ranking of those angels are called sons of God. But they're given that title, they're not begotten sons. Not one of them is ever spoken of as begotten. They're all created. All of the created sons in the angelic realm, the Beneha Elohim. And some of them are called Elohim, that they themselves are called gods, as, uh, as angelic beings of divine power. But none of them are begotten. Every one of them is created. That's a big difference. Only Jesus is begotten of the Father in this way. And how many times does Psalm 2, 7 get quoted in the book of Hebrews? Several. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten thee. This is Psalm 2. It's a promise of that future millennial kingdom. But it spotlights a day, a day in the eternity past, a day which actually is the boundary between eternity and time. It is the first day ever. Today I have begotten thee. And so the beginning of his humanity, when God the Son became the God-man, that is day one of time. That's the boundary moment between eternity past and the temporal present. Not Not the virgin in the manger, not, you know, 4 BC, we're talking about before Adam, before the heavens and the earth, before the angels, at the very boundary of eternity past. Because in eternity past, all there was was God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinity and perfection, Trinity and in, in fellowship and peace and, and glory. That's all the eternity past existence of God and God alone. But then to be birthed from eternity the birthing of Jesus' human nature, his human soul, his humanity, and then attaching that humanity to the person of God the Son. So God the Son became the God-man at that boundary moment of time. And we've studied this before. In fact, this gets us into the controversy of uh, Proverbs 8, 22. The Lord begat me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. From everlasting, I was... uh, birth, I was woven, I was uh, established from the beginning, from the earliest times, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. There were no depths, but he was birthed. The humanity of God the Son was birthed when there were no depths. So this has to be before Genesis 1-3. In Genesis 1-3, we read that the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the deeps. Well, guess what? Before there were any deeps, God the Son and His humanity was birthed. This is the the beginning of time. In fact, I think it's a big difference between in the beginning and from the beginning. Because this statement is from everlasting. From the beginning. That's that moment that crosses you from eternity past into time. And so now that there is something that exists besides God, The humanity of Jesus Christ exists. Now we have sequence. Now we have before and after. Now we have the dimension of time that flows in a forward linear direction. And everything else that comes to be comes to be after the humanity of Jesus Christ comes to be. Because Jesus Christ is the one that makes it. John 3.16, the only begotten Son. God so loved the world that He gave His 
only begotten Son, His uniquely born Son, His one-of-a-kind Son. Nobody else was birthed the way that the humanity of Jesus Christ was birthed and vested from the Father to the Son into His very person. The very person of God the Son receives this second nature and He's had those two natures ever since. Ever since the Alpha moment. Alright? By the way, this is not the common view. You have to freely know that. If you get on Facebook and you post that or talk about it with 99 out of 100 other pastors, they're not going to know what you're talking about. They're going it, to, it's, it's, without even thinking about it, they're just assum- uh, the assumption is, is that God the Son does not receive His humanity until He receives His virgin-born human body. And they, they insist that humanity requires a body to be human. And so until the virgin's pregnant, until the baby's born in the manger, until Jesus is wrapped in swaddling clothes with a, with a human body, he can't have a human nature without a human body. And they will tell you that, they will swear left and right, but that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says this birthing took place when there were no depths, when there was no dust. When there was no dust, we're told. Adam came from the dust. But when there was no dust, this humanity was birthed. Anyway, stay tuned for that. If you want more on that, it's uh, sitting on the website. Not only in the Hebrews material is it on the website, but it's in the Proverbs material It's in the website, and it's in the Colossians material that it's on the website. Because we've approached this in all these series. It's Colossians 1, where he's the firstborn of all creation. We dealt with the very same concept. How are you the firstborn of all creation? Well, Proverbs 8 tells you. He is the firstborn of all creation and the heir of all things. Colossians 1.15 combined with uh, Hebrews 1.2. We just read Hebrews 1.2. In the last of these days He has spoken to us in His Son whom He appointed heir of all things through whom also He made the world. Through whom also He made the world. So the Father still has a construction uh, connection. He is still a moral agent of, of the creation but he's not the direct agent of creation. That he did so through the agency of Jesus Christ. They're both said to have made it. We, we get how this works. An architect and a, and a contractor. You know, who, who built this place? Do we credit the architect for building this church or the general contractor for building this church? Both the architect and builder built this church. The father being the architect, Jesus Christ being the carpenter. Say, you think he learned carpentry from Joseph, his earthly father? I'm sure he did, in earthly terms. I'm sure that the little boy Jesus learned from his father, Joseph, about earthly carpentry work. While at the same time, God the Son built the universe in, in the glories of that. Anyway, Colossians 1.15 He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. It's a big difference. When we start our Genesis series here in September, we're going to learn that Adam and Eve, they were made in the image of God. That's how they were made. But Jesus is the image of God. I can't stress that enough or strongly enough, or frequently enough, or loud enough, or over and over and over again. 
Adam and Eve were in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. And uh, in particular, the nature of his humanity is, is older than Adam himself. Because it was the God-man who made Adam in his image. If you think about it that way. This whole universe, God the Son made it, but he made it as the God-man. It wasn't just God the Son that created the universe, it was the God-man in hypostatic union who created the universe. Does that make a difference? I think there's a theological impact to that. Especially if we consider the anthropocentric nature of this created universe, it is fine-tuned for humanity. This planet certainly is fine-tuned for humanity. Why is that? What is the nature of humanity? Why is the nature of humanity, not angelity, the nature of humanity takes center stage? Not angels. Because Adam was created in the image of God, who, by the way, is Jesus Christ. So when we read in Genesis 1, three times it's stated, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, right? Genesis 1.26, in the image of God, who is, by the way, Jesus Christ. Makes a difference theologically. So stay tuned for that. And of course, the heir of all things. The heir of all things. God the Son is God the Father's appointed builder of all things, the craftsman to faithfully execute the Father's plan. This is why there's speaking involved. God says, let there be light. And there was light. God the Father directs the activity. God the Son makes it happen. Because the Father and the Son are working together. My Father is working until now and I myself am working. I and the Father are one. The apostle and the uh, architect and builder is God. Remember, Abraham was looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. That also was a verse we saw here in the book of Hebrews. So God the Son is God the Father's appointed builder of all things, the craftsman to faithfully execute the Father's plan. And you know, if you didn't have any of these verses, you should still understand this principle. Because we know that natural revelation reveals God. Romans 1 tells us that humanity is without excuse. God is plainly seen. That a rational being looking rationally at this universe has to conclude that mighty God exists. His invisible nature, His eternal power are clearly seen, being observed through what has been made so that they are without excuse. The universe testifies to the existence of God. So then logically, if that's a given, then who built the universe? Logically. Jesus built the universe because who's the one that reveals the Father? Jesus is the one who reveals the Father. No one one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The reason why the Word became flesh and dwelt among us is so that He could reveal the Father. John chapter 1, verse 14, verse 17. And so, the Father wouldn't create the universe Himself and display Himself. That's what the Son is for. To display the Father. So, God says, let there be, and Jesus makes it so. That's that's just logically, even if we didn't have all these passages of Scripture. We would understand that it's God the Son who's doing all this. 
Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. The word of the Lord is God the Son, Jesus Christ. Breath can be a reference to the Spirit as well, God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who is brooding over the surface of the deep. Why do humans breathe? Why do animals breathe? What's the function of breath within uh, these animate beings on this planet? Anyway, so we've got the word of the Lord and we've got the breath of his mouth. Proverbs 8, we were just in. We didn't get down to verse 26. We see the architect and we see the builder. While he, that's the father, had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world. So that's pre-Adam, right? Adam came from dust. This is a verse that says dust isn't here yet. So are we, are we clear on this? I mean, I try to keep things simple. The first dust of the world isn't here yet. Adam came from dust. So clearly this is pre-Adam. I was there. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundaries so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundation of the earth. Now it kind of sounds like as I get down through verse 29, this is a song praising the glory of the Father, the begetter. The begotten one is celebrating the begetter. And so this is all just a praise to what the Father has done. And it sounds like the Father's done all of this until we notice. Not only was he there, but he was the workman. I was beside him as a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. This is like John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. They were together in this father-son dynamic because the begetter and the begotten one, the father spoke it, the the son did it. rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, having my delight in the sons of men. You know, when a little kid picks out his favorite toy and sometimes you can't explain why, and it's not the one you thought, it's not the expensive one you bought, but this cheap thing, or maybe it's the box that the expensive thing came in, whatever it is, and you're wondering why does my kid pick this out as his favorite? Sometimes it doesn't make any sense. Jesus did not pick out angels for his favorite. He picked out humanity, having my delight in the sons of men. And they were the last created realm. Angels were here long before humanity. But his delight was in humanity because humanity was the one that was created in his image. He being the image of God. So the Son is the Father's appointed builder of all things. He is the craftsman, the master workman, and daily his delight. John 1.3 All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. So everything that's created, he, he created it. God the Son, the God-man. Jesus Christ in hypostatic union. 
created everything that's been created. In him was life, and life was the light of men. That's the delight that he has. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. See, John 1, total harmony with Proverbs 8. Total harmony with Proverbs 8. And this, by the way, is what Justin Martyr used in his apology, in his apologetics, in his evangelism to Jewish people. He used their own scriptures and said, look, you Jews, you got Proverbs 8 in your Bible, right? Do you know who that craftsman was in Proverbs 8? The wisdom that created the world? Proverbs 8, your scriptures called him wisdom. John 1, our scriptures called him the word. And he, and he drew that parallel between Proverbs 8 and John 1, both speaking of Jesus Christ, the God-man, creator of the universe. Colossians 1.16, we've already seen, he is the firstborn of all creation, the image of the invisible God. By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. That's deeper than Genesis. Genesis doesn't tell us about the angels. Genesis just tells us about the visible. Genesis walks us through birds, fish, land animals, Adam, then Eve. We get get the visible. Now the invisible is created sometimes, somewhere, but we can't really fit it. It's hard to fit into Genesis 1. Day 1, day 2, day 6. I mean, where is it? Obviously it's around because... Satan's already a fallen thing by Genesis 3 when the serpent is tempting Eve. So when did she come? When did, when did the angels get made? They get kicked out of the garden and a cherubim is posted there with a flaming sword. And you're like, hello, what's a cherubim? It's the first time the word is used. It's not used in chapter 1. It's not used in chapter 2. So when did it get created? I believe it got created within Genesis 1-1 before verse 2 because it was the angelic rebellion that produced the formless and void judgment of verse 2. Stay tuned. We're going to get into all these things. But he's the creator of all things, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. That's the agency. See, through means he didn't just do it on a whim. He didn't do it because he wanted to. Through him means it was the father doing it through the son. The son was obedient to the father's design, the father's will. He wasn't speaking of his own initiative, but as the Father who sent him. Through him, but it was also for him. Why is there a universe? Why is there going to be new heavens and a new earth? Because this one is destroyed by sin. The next one will be glorious. And it's for Jesus, not for us. It's for Jesus. We happen to be in Jesus, which is a good place to be. All right. Hebrews 1, 2, we've read several times already spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. If you think about it, when this current heavens and earth are destroyed, what, what's left? Nothing. When the new heavens and new earth are made, what's that? That's everything. And who does it belong to? Jesus. Alright. Hebrews 11.3 He also made the ages. By faith we understand that the ages were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. Not only do we have a created physical universe, we also have a succession of ages. The angelic age, the human age, the Jewish age, the church age, the, all the various ages within those dispensations and stewardships as well. 
Jesus Christ controls history. He is sovereignly shaping the unfolding ages. We didn't go right from Adam and Eve to the church age. Adam wasn't the first pastor. Eve wasn't the first pastor's wife. The church age was a while coming. Had to have the patriarchal age. Had to have promise. Had to have law. See, grace is, I mean, grace is a glorious anyway, but think about how much more glorious grace is because it's coming after law has already failed everybody. It's a glorious thing. In turn, each of these things comes. Through whom also he made the ages. Then we're told in uh, verse 3 here that he took a seat. Let me go back to chapter 1, Hebrews 1 3. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. This gives us a great faith in, in the current universe that God's got it under control. We're not scared about global warming ruining our planet because there's uh, intergalactic warming about to destroy the whole universe anyway. So we just rest in Christ knowing that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And this universe will be sustained as long as Jesus Christ tells it to. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ took his seat. How marvelous. And we'll have more to say on this when we get into the priesthood, when we get into the the contrast. Because the Levitical priests, they never sit down. The great high priest, he never sits down. Every priest stands daily ministering before the Lord. The high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. He never sits down. There's a mercy seat in there, but he doesn't sit on it. He, he spreads blood on it, and then he comes back out. And he's good for another year, okay? And going to do it again next year on the Day of Atonement. He never sits down. But Jesus... He made one sacrifice, one time for all eternity when he made purification of sins and he didn't turn around and come right back out. He passed through. He went to glory. He went to the heavenly realities. In fact, that earthly replica, he never even went in there. He hung on the cross and that veil was rent in two, showed an empty room for what it was and he never even went in there. Had no business going in there. No need to go in there. But he passed through the heavens And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. What do the angels inherit? They don't actually have an inheritance. They have a destiny. They have an eternal destiny to look forward to as servants. But they don't have an inheritance. They're not sons as Jesus is the son as we are sons in Christ. They don't have a bequest from their father as we do in Christ. To which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. There's the first of our Psalm 2-7 quotations. We'll get into this next week. Seated. Seated. This is a great big until. He is seated because he is invited and he is worthy. He is seated as king-priest waiting for his next appearance on the earth when he again brings the firstborn into the world. 
The firstborn has come into the world once already, as the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The firstborn will come into the world a second time, not in humility, not in the virgin birth, not as a babe in the manger. He's going to descend on a white horse and he's going to conquer. He is seated, invited, and worthy. This is an important principle because it speaks to the fact that it is a rest, but it is a rest for a moment. There's more work to be done. He is seated only until... And we'll see the promises here from Psalm 110. He's not seated forever. It's only until. It's only until. Our loved ones that have died and gone to heaven, that's not forever. It's only until. Because they're coming back. They're coming back with Jesus. And if we should die before the rapture, then we're going to come back with Jesus. Everyone who dies in Christ comes back with Christ. He is invited and He is worthy. To take a seat without being invited is presumptuous, it's arrogant, and and it's unworthy of the seat itself. Remember when James and John tried to score seats for themselves and they roped their mother in on it and they tried to, you know, pull their family connections in since their mother was was Jesus' mother's sister. And they were cousins and they thought, hey, you know, we'll get our mom in on this. And Jesus says, I can't assign those seats. The Father assigns those seats. Jesus isn't even claiming His own seat. Jesus is going to take the seat that the Father gives Him. Satan tried to take his own seat though. and That's what the five I wills are all about. He hated the seat He was assigned and He wanted, a, he wanted Jesus' seat is what He wanted. And He's not entitled to it. Because that seat is for a son. And Satan is a created cherub. He is invited and He is worthy. So He took His seat, we're told. He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high and He was invited to do so. Look down to verse 13. To which of the angels did He say, did He ever say, sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The answer is none of them. None of the angels had the invitation Jesus had. None of the angels did the work Jesus did. None of the angels had the glory Jesus had. It's only the Son of God, the begotten Son of God, who is the God-man who could do the work to redeem humanity. He is invited and He is worthy. Nope, don't do that. Nope, don't do that. I keep learning all these control keyboard shortcuts. I want control G. Hebrews 8 1. And sometimes I don't hit the G. Last week I hit the R, which started the reading. I'll, don't do that again. <laughs> sometimes I hit the L, which opens up the library. Don't do that again. All right. I think the last one was an H. History. Yeah, don't do that again. All right. Hebrews 8.1. Does the speaker ever ramble sometimes? Does he ever lose his audience? Sometimes. All right. So it's useful every now and then to say, look, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. 
You got that? It's kind of a big deal. In fact, that's how the author of Hebrews is summarizing seven chapters. So that in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, now we can move forward. Don't miss this. Our high priest is seated at the right hand of God the Father, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. It's a good thing he's in heaven and not on earth right now. That's to our advantage. That's to our benefit. We have a marvelous priesthood now in Christ because our Savior is ever living to make intercession for the saints. He is seated at the Father's right hand. He is invited and He is worthy. Hebrews 10, 12. Verse 11 says, Every priest, every Levitical priest, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Here we go again. Day of Atonement. Here we go again. Scapegoat. Here we go again. And every year, when are we ever going to be done with this? Well, when Messiah comes. All of these pictures are done with the reality that's fulfilled in Christ. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward. He's not going to sit there forever. He's coming again. We sang it three times today. Every hymn we sang was about the return of Christ. Jesus is coming again. Maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, maybe soon. Okay? Until his enemies be made a footstool. Right now, his enemies are raging and it's not pleasant to watch. The God-haters, the enemies of Jesus Christ seem to have the upper hand in a lot of places for a lot of things. But their day is coming. Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is seated as a king priest waiting for his next appearance on earth. He's coming again. This was prophesied in Hebrews 1.10. No, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There's two Lords in that verse. The Lord says to my Lord. This is the Father speaking to the Son, who is David's Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so this is why we have the outline, the King Son, in chapters 1 through 4. He is waiting to come and rule as the King of kings and Lord of lords. When he lands at Armageddon, when he conquers this world, when he reigns on the millennial earth, he is the king's son on the throne, on David's throne in Jerusalem. But he's also a priest. He's a king priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that's promised a thousand years before Christ. It's a Davidic psalm. And it makes no sense in the Old Testament. Because the king can't be a priest. The priest can't be a king. The king comes from the line of Judah. The priest comes from the line of of Levi. Oh, he's a Melchizedek priest. Well, that's different. How can the king be a Melchizedek priest? We're going to have 
a Melchizedek priest and a Levitical priest at the same time? How's that going to work? Won't there be tension between the two kinds of priests? Won't there be tension between the kingly office and the priestly office? Not in this priestly line. Not with this king. So if it didn't make any sense to David, it would have made even less sense to Zechariah. But Zechariah 6.13 is another prophecy of a king-priest. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. There's king. Thus he will be a priest on his throne. That's a king-priest. And I tell you, other than Psalm 110 and... uh, Zechariah uh, 6, this is alien to almost the entirety of the Old Testament. Because the king comes from Judah, the priest comes from Levi. Thus he will be priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between these two offices. And you've got to imagine the rabbis, the Jewish believers in the Old Testament, they were stumped. They had to been wondering, how's this going to work? It seems like God's making promises that he can't fulfill. How's this going to work? Oh, he's going to fulfill them all right. And thankfully you and I are now in the position with the New Testament to add to our Old Testament to understand how this is all put together in the person of Jesus Christ. So he's invited and he is worthy. All right. We reached the bottom of the notes you have in your bulletin. All right. We reached the bottom of the notes I have up here. I guess we're done. <laughs> Next week when we come back, we'll uh, be looking at starting in one five, to which of the angels did he ever say, and going all the way through the rest of chapter one, all of two, three, and four. The glories of Jesus over the angelic realm, and the help that he provides for humanity by faith. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the the last three years. I thank you for what we learned, what we continue to learn, all these things, Father, that we reviewed. Maybe, Maybe we learned nothing new today, but you reminded us of things that we already learned and should not have forgotten. So thank you for being faithful. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.